night, and welcome to Make Good, the podcast about yarn and knitting from Scratch Supply Co. We're recording today in downtown Lebanon, New Hampshire, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Karen. And I'm Jessica. And today we're going to be talking to our friends from the Junction Fiber Mill right across the river in White River Junction, Vermont. Super exciting. Before we jump into the interview, though, this episode is coming out on Tuesday. Rhinebeck is this weekend. So we are going to be in two places that you know about already, but we're telling you again today. On Friday, we'll be at India Untangled and we'll be floating around all day. And if you see us, come talk to us and show us your amazing knits and hang out in the Make Good Lounge. But we're going to be doing an actual meetup at Rhinebeck on Saturday because India Untangled is a ticketed event with time slots and limited numbers. So on Saturday, October 16th at Rhinebeck, which is at the Dutchess County Fairgrounds, we will be meeting on the hill under the big tree where everyone does meetups at 1.30. So that's Saturday at 1.30. Come see us. Yeah, and if you're not coming this year for one of a wide variety of reasons, don't worry, we'll be doing this again. Mm-hmm. So Amanda and Peggy, can you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I'm Amanda Kivit. And I'm Peggy Allen. And we own Junction Fiber Mill, which is a new fiber mill in White River Junction, Vermont. We started this journey a little over a year ago, and we opened up shop March of 2021 to take custom processing orders for roving. And then in April, we started doing custom processing for yarn. And lately, we've been doing both of those things, but also processing our own line of yarn that we're excited to get out into the world in in one way or another. Yeah, it's been quite the journey. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves as fiber people? Like, how did you come to be mill owners? I'm so old, I'll start and try to keep it short. I have a very distinct memory of my mom dropping me off at a yarn shop in Greenwich, Connecticut on Greenwich Avenue and saying, she's going to teach you how to knit. I don't know why my mom didn't want to teach me. And that goes <laughs> way back. And I remember getting a little printout Xerox brochure on casting on and I, you know, maybe I was 10 years old. So I've known how to knit you know, forever, but it wasn't until Labor Day weekend of 2011 that I was vacationing with my husband on the San Juan Islands. And we came across 75-year-old Annette raising sheep. And my husband said to Annette, you know, you're living my wife's dream. She always wanted to have a sheep farm to satisfy her fiber craze. And (laughs) as we were leaving that little farm, my husband turned to me and said, you know, if that's something you're still interested in, you're still as crazy about fiber, I'm happy to start a sheep farm with you. And I was like, boing. (laughs) Long story short, we moved from the Chicago area to White River Junction, Vermont, and started a little sheep farm raising colored Corydale. It's been a marvelous journey. It's been about nine and a half years. And I got to know Amanda in the last couple of years. Yeah, Peg and I met at the farmer's market a few years ago, and I bought some yarn from her. At the time, I had moved to Vermont. Well, now it's been about five years And I was doing web development and design, which is something I was doing in New York City before this. Knitting was always a hobby for me since childhood also, but I never thought I would end up doing anything in the knitting space for a career, that's for sure. 
And then I met Peg and first of all, her yarn was fabulous. So I really enjoyed knitting with it. And then I wanted to meet the sheep as I think a lot of people do. So she let me come over and meet the sheep. And then we just became good friends in fiber and Peg invited me to her hand spinning group. So I learned a little bit about that. And I think once COVID hit, and there was a couple other personal circumstances that kind of made me want to do a complete 180 career-wise, as I think a lot of people have. And so I was fantasizing about what that could look like. And I remembered that Peggy mentioned Hampton Fiber Mill in Richmond, Vermont, which had done her wool processing for years, was no longer accepting custom processing, and might possibly be interested in selling, though it wasn't for sale at that moment. So I approached her at the farmer's market and I said, hey, Peggy, do you think you can put me in touch with Michael Hampton? I'm thinking about buying the fiber mill. And then I think about a week later, he said he'd be open to selling it. He gave us a fair price and with the caveat that he would teach us everything because we had never owned a fiber mill. We never worked in a fiber mill. So we went on the journey with him to uh, acquire and move his equipment across the state of Vermont in the snow in February to White River Junction. And he gave us about five full day lessons in how to operate the machinery and was very generous with teaching us everything that he could for us to succeed. When you come into our mill, everything down to the garbage pails and the scales a hundred percent of what he worked with and he had worked out his system really perfected it so there was no oh shoot what are we going to do to get from point a to point b because michael had laid it all out and he was just so incredibly generous and i think he was very thrilled to have the mill stay not only in new england but in vermont i will say one of our challenges was where to put the mill because real estate in the white river junction area is on fire And we very much wanted to be on town water and town waste. And our options were extremely limited. So we feel that the stars aligned to place us in this very cool old building right on the main drag of White River Junction. And it's very fun to be putting yarn out into the window where we're drying it and seeing the double take as cars drive by. (laughs) We don't have a retail space because we can't do that while the equipment's running. I remember seeing the photos on your Instagram of the process of moving that mill equipment in. So for folks who are listening to this who maybe don't already follow the Junction Fiber Mill, it's really big equipment. I think people didn't really know, like most, maybe fiber folks know, but like certainly when I was talking to my friends about, oh yeah, I'm going to start this fiber mill. I think they thought we were going to sit down with some spinning wheels and make yarn from nine to five very slowly. (laughs) Definitely not what we did. This equipment takes up the space of about a three car garage. There's about four pieces of equipment, which are about the size of a car. And then there's a couple of smaller pieces that are also extremely heavy. So we hired some very talented riggers that the previous owner recommended. And they came on one day, loaded up the equipment at Hampton Fiber Mill in Richmond, Vermont, using forklifts onto a semi. They completely filled the semi truck. And then we were just sort of crossing our fingers and sweeping the floors here as we waited for it to make its way the next day down to White River. And it was extremely nerve wracking. In fact, the morning of the move, we had to have a part of a staircase that goes up to the second floor of our building chopped off. Yeah, the first two steps to the stairwell, gone. <laughs> so that the forklift could fit through our space. 
Yeah, again, it was a February day. Not ideal. There was a lot of snow on the ground. It was a complete mess in here when everything was set into place. But, you know, in the end, it succeeded and we were able to get everything to turn on. Part of what made it work is we spent a lot of time with blue tape and taping out exactly, okay, this is where the picker is going to fit. This is where the carter is going to fit down to the half inch to make certain that when the rigging company came in, we weren't wasting their time. It landed right in the spot that it should. But I should point out all of these are electric. We needed to have a really very good electricians go up to Hampton Fiber Mill and take the conduit to get the right kind of power into the right place. And then when it moved down, we also needed that same talent to have wired our building. And that was no small job. And Kramer Electric just did an absolutely outstanding job. Despite the fact that it was February, we feel incredibly fortunate to have had the talent we had make it all go smoothly because when we pressed the on button, it went on. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things for us has been the goal was to make yarn and that we are doing now. But for the months leading up to opening, it was a lot of very preliminary knowledge about like electricians and how these things should be wired and just like the terms for the parts so we could even talk to people on the phone about this stuff um, because it is such big and daunting equipment. But I think over the months, we've had to rely less and less on Michael's expertise. And we're able to debug a lot of stuff that goes on here, which has been extremely rewarding, but definitely wasn't anything in either of our backgrounds. At at all. And if you think about it, if you used your head and not your heart, you'd go, wait a minute, you're going to buy a bunch of equipment that has a lot of fast moving parts that, you know, tell you not to wear jewelry. And you're going to learn how to run this equipment. You've never done anything. What? <laughs> thought about it that way, we probably would have walked away. But I think our hearts were so into it because we knew there was a huge need. And I think the other thing that happened, the anxiety of working with the equipment was very high for me. I was like, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to break anything. Over time, wow, you know what? I, I know what I'm doing. And when something goes wrong, I know what that is and I know what to do. And you shift from high levels of anxiety to this is so cool. Amanda, look what I just did with this yarn. (laughs) And there's just a great joy that follows. Yeah. Well, and it, it feels like it's a little bit like knitting in that way. You don't know how until you've done it. Yep. Except with a lot more infrastructure, (laughs) much less, much less portable. Yes. Yeah. But I think you get the same kind of jazz where you've made the yarn and you can't wait for the owner who's going to come pick it up and they're going to come in and you just want to watch their face as they undo the knot and pick out a skein and go, oh my God, it's very fun. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about who it is that's bringing fiber to your mill? Like what is the setup for that? We kind of knew that just based on our own experience as sheep farmers, that there was a real shortage of mills of this size in our area. So we were never concerned about getting business and it kind of held true to us. We just put a blast out on the Vermont Sheep and Goat Association listserv and kept the community up to date about when we were going to open. And then we just had a ton of orders from farms like Pegs, for instance, that are what was that, like 200 pounds? 230 pounds. Of wool, that's like probably the biggest order we've had. And then through to people who just have their seven pounds of, you know, maybe two fleeces that they want to come in and get made into roving. So it's area sheep farmers from Vermont, 
New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts. We've had some in New York. Some are full-on fiber farms that I think have their own retail play in their areas. And then others are a labor of love. They're raising their sheep and they want to be able to knit the wool and give the yarn as gifts. It's great to work with people who totally know their fiber well, know what they want. And you're like, I hope we can live up to your expectations. And then to the people who say, you know, help me along the learning curve. So it's good. Can you talk a little bit about your capacity? You talked about the equipment being maybe like the size of a car, but I feel like lots of fiber people don't have a whole lot of experience inside of a fiber mill or schema for like how much yarn you can produce in like a single milling session. I'm not even sure if that's how you refer to that. But when you get in the fleece that needs to be processed, how much can you put out? Like how many bobbins do you have available? That kind of thing. So we have, it's an eight spindle spinner, so we can do eight bobbins at a time. Each of those bobbins can be like one to one and a half pounds full. One session, what I would call it on the spinner, we can do about 10 pounds. And we can usually do two per day. So we're doing about 20 ish pounds of yarn a day if that thing is running nonstop, which is what we like to have happen. Sometimes things happen in the flow where we need to reject a fleece for some reason after it's already been scoured and then there's not something coming right behind it. So that's what, you know, has been sort of the learning curve of keeping this place running efficiently. But with two people, actually, we can usually have all of the equipment running. We can have normally some wool being washed. We're kind of working with probably four days of the week doing 16 to 20 pounds a day. And so as far as time goes on the spinner side of things, if we're doing like a two ply yarn, we're going to take four or five pounds into the single ply. That'll take about 45 minutes to an hour. And then we'll do that again for the second ply. And then the plying will take about the same amount of time. So it's, you know, three to four hours to get that thing to completion. And then we'll go and do that again. So it's before lunch, after lunch type of thing. And then the other equipment is actually very well matched to the spinner. So when the wool comes in, it's raw. First, we wash it. We can wash about 15 to 20 pounds at a time in our four sinks. And then once we've waited for that to dry, it goes into the picker, which picks apart the fibers and beats out some of the vegetation. That one can handle a lot of wool per hour. I'm not even sure what the limit would be for that. It then goes into the carter, which is set to run at six pounds of wool an hour. And the carter sort of starts to align those fibers by passing them through a series of teeth drums. And it comes out the other end as a strand of roving. So we're getting that strand at six pounds an hour. And then it goes into the pin drafter, which further aligns those fibers. That can do about 10 pounds an hour into roving as well, but we have to run it through twice for the spinner. So if you take that into consideration, it's really about five pounds an hour finished. And then, yeah, with the spinner, we're doing eight to 10 pounds over three to four hours. So, yeah. It's very labor intensive because into that also is then you have, when you get it onto the bobbin as spun two ply yarn, you've got to put it on the skein winder and make your skeins. Then you have to manually hank them. After they spin, we give them a rinse just to make certain that the fiber is blooming, that you're getting that characteristic of that particular fleece. So you then got to dry it overnight. Sometimes there's a lot of humidity in the air. You dry it for a couple of days. So even when you add up the amount of hours it's going through the equipment, there are these additional hours for drying 
and others. So it, it's amazing how much touching goes on and how much time it takes and how, frankly, labor intensive it is. I really enjoy when, especially people who aren't familiar with the mill process, come drop off their fiber, walking them through to make certain they understand just how much is involved. Because we charge by the raw weight coming in. So if you've got 10 pounds, it's, we actually have a 13-pound minimum you know, to make certain that the spinner is working at capacity. And to make yarn, it can be anywhere from $35 to $40 per pound. And for some people, that's going to be a lot of money. But what we want to make sure they understand is, come look at what we're doing. And I think if there was any kind of hesitation, they're like, oh, okay, got it. Yeah, it's not the kind of thing at all that like they could do themselves at home in any way. <laughs> There's some people, what motivates them is they don't want to scour anymore. Because trying to scour, <laughs> and you guys may have been through this, when you try to scour a raw fleece at home, it is messy and hard. And one of the advantages that we have is not only do we have four sinks lined up in a row with two on-demand hot water heaters that get us to 180 degrees, which you don't get at home, we have a hoist system. So when that raw wool comes in, we set it out on our skirting table to make certain there aren't any nails or horrible burrs. We don't want anything that is going to damage our equipment. And then we bag it into laundry bags in roughly five-pound increments. And those laundry bags have loops on them. So when they go into the sink to start getting washed, we can easily hook them onto the hoist to bring it up to drain out so nobody's breaking their back. And when you get 15 and 20 pounds of wool wet, it's really heavy. The scouring system is a heck of a lot easier than what you would have to deal with at home. That's so smart because mill work is not easy work. So whatever you can do to like protect your bodies and keep yourselves able to do the work is really important. So it's nice to hear that you thought of that from the beginning and it wasn't an adjustment as a result of some sort of like wet wool related injury or something. Right. The other thing that we literally stumbled on when we were trying to figure out, well, what kind of detergent should we use to wash with? We came across a video of a woman that was recommending Echo Scour 305, which is what we use. And she had a little video on how she did her scouring. And she had this truly jumbo potato masher. And what she was saying in the video is when you've got the fleece in the laundry bag in the super hot water, you can press down on it with this potato masher and not risk felting the fiber. And we were both like, oh, that is genius. We would have never have thought of that. And we have two, and they get used every day. They make a huge difference in terms of the ability to make certain that the detergent and the hot water have really gone commingled all the way through the fibers to make it really clean. It's like, obviously, people know these things out there. How do you even Google for some of this stuff that we've had to figure out? It's been funny. <laughs> yeah. One of the other challenges is that a lot of our equipment is from the, the 1940s and it's not being made anymore. We had one instance where our can coiler, which takes the roving and does this marvelous job of coiling it very uniformly and it sinks into a can that's spring-loaded. We knew we had a gear that had a tooth breaking off and it was like, where the heck are we going to get the gear? And how on earth does one replace a gear? And tracking down parts down in North Carolina, and then finding, again, as Amanda said, the stars align and you meet people who are mechanically inclined or it's what they do for a living. And uh, there's a guy named John that came into our world and he, he's been marvelous. Not only will I show you how to replace the gear, 
I'm going to teach you how to replace it. So you're going to be able to do it yourselves. And he's done that now a couple of times for us. And what a godsend. That's so fantastic. So that's, I think, not super unusual among mills either. Like we have, so there's you and there's a mill down in Harrisville, New Hampshire, and there's a mill in Putney, Vermont. And I'm thinking specifically of Green Mountain Spinnery in Putney, Vermont. All of their equipment is like, I'm going to say vintage. (laughs) And it's one of those things. And luckily, right, at the time when it was made, that equipment will probably be in that building and functional long past the time the building itself falls down. Right. But if something did happen to it, that's stressful. (laughs) If you look at our pin drafter, it's absolutely brilliant. Whoever came up with, oh, if you take a 74 combs or followers, but they look like combs, and we're going to have them go up and down really fast at the same time that they're moving around in a loop. And it's going to work for a hundred years and it's going to be made with such precision and with such quality metal. You're like, God, this is incredible. But this one little widget is capable of breaking. And then you're like, okay. (laughs) So we had that with our spinner. We had a tiny little piece that probably is worth like 10 cents, but it's not going to be at Home Depot and trying to track it down because we needed it to keep the roller from dropping to the floor every time. And it was tracking down people who have parts and who are willing to go through their bags and buckets and whatever to see, oh yeah, I've got four of those. I'll I'll send them your way. Crazy. So it seems like keeping everything running and becoming educated and skilled at what you need to be doing to do this every day is like a true community effort. You're needing to connect with people and, you know, join brains to figure out how to keep things functional. What has the larger community's response been to the mill being here? They've been so positive about it. Gosh, I mean, the fiber farmers are delighted that we have put the Hampton fiber mill equipment back online. People who depended on Michael for many years originally, and then people who are local, they have a few sheep and they've never had their wool processed before, are delighted to find out that there is a local wool processing mill that they can try this thing out for the first time. The knitters have been so excited it turns out there's a real community of folks. I mean, I'm sure you know with the store too, but we just hear in very random places, the doctor's office, for instance, I've heard so many times of, oh, you have the fiber mill. And it's like just these folks who have a hobby of knitting that are just so excited to hear that yarn is being produced in the place that they live. Most mills are down a dirt road and on somebody's farm or kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so to be doing a mill like ours right on the main drag with a storefront is very unusual. And so I think there's this level of curiosity. The response has been from both people who know fiber to people who have no idea what the heck a mill is and really enjoying seeing, you know, mill work happening right in downtown White River Junction. So we feel just so lucky to be right smack dab in a hot little town. So can you talk to us a little bit about what some of the challenges you've encountered have been or what's been surprising to you? One of the challenges, as you guys know, we had a really hot summer. Miserable. (laughs) Yeah, 85, 90. And when we're running our equipment, because of the wool, we need humidity in the air. 
if there were no humidity, if the humidity gets below 55%, it becomes very problematic to have the wool stay together when it's going through the carter and when it's coming out as roving and when it's going through the pin drafter. If there's really low humidity, the wool gets kind of fly away. It's just like brushing your hair in the fall or whenever it gets really dry and, and all of a sudden it just wants to go floof. So the problem is you cannot turn on the AC because the way AC works is it starts by pulling out the humidity because when you don't have humidity in the air, it feels a little cooler. We've spent many, many days wearing next to nothing. We'd look at the wall temperature. It's 85. With 72% humidity. It was like working <laughs> in New Orleans. That, to be honest with you, was really difficult. And sometimes we would just say, you know, by three o'clock, we got to stop because then the sun has come around and it's baking through the window. So that is a conundrum to be figured out. Just like the necessary physicality of it. Like, this is not an easy thing you two are doing. No. And I think when people got over the idea of, okay, we're not going to sit there and make yarn by hand. They're like, great. So it's all electric. So you just watch it. It's like, nah. I mean, if it's going really, really smoothly, there have been pockets of maybe five to six minutes that we can sit down every now and then, but mostly on top of having to constantly feed machines and weigh things out, there's twisting skeins, there's monitoring the scouring, and because we are trying to be as efficient as we can to keep our prices as low as they can be, you know, there's just always stuff to do. So we're on our feet all day, we're running around, it's a very physical job. I used to do a lot of running before I opened this mill, and then it just felt very extra after work to come <laughs> home and continue to run around on my feet. Definitely yeah. adapted. I yeah. mean, having worked in food service, like in my early 20s, I think it's very similar to that where you're just, you're always running around. It's very active. But I think that I really like that about this job, especially since transitioning from computer work. It's just really rewarding to be able to use my body all day to make a physical thing that you can hold in your hands. And that's been great. But yeah, we talked a bit about the challenges of the machines. I think one of the other challenges is that when people come in with their beloved fleece, and you've got it in a bag and you're like, I can't wait to do this. And then you lay it out on the skirting table and you realize that there's a tremendous amount of VM, which is vegetable matter in it. And you kind of ache because you know that this fleece is important to somebody and they're not realizing that it's because of the feeding system that they've used for their animals that too much grass, hay has gotten embedded into it. And while our equipment, especially the picker and carter, can remove a lot, it cannot remove all. And it's a little heartbreaking because the fleece is spectacular, but there was so much VM in it that she's going to pick up her skein and there are going to be little flecks of dry brown hay throughout it. We can point to another example of a different customer where it was immaculate and hence the yarn is immaculate. So that, that's a little challenging. And we're trying to communicate on our website that people work at it because it, what we're realizing, it's not just a skirting issue. It's how you're feeding your animals when they move from grass to hay. Peggy, am I remembering correctly that with your own sheep, you actually would like have them wear coats? Yes, we jacket our fleece. We only jacket them when they move to hay. In the first couple of years, I jacketed them year round. And the challenge with that is that as the fleece grows, you have to swap out and put on a bigger jacket and it's crazy labor intensive. We winter over between 30 and 34 sheep and we jacket them the moment they go on to hay. 
not all fleece have to be jacketed, but if you have a fine fleece like a Cormo, Merino, Corydale, first of all, they carry a lot of lanolin and their fleeces are generally pretty dense. And so jacketing goes a long way, a long way. It's everything. It's what keeps it clean. There are other breeds though, Jacob, Shetland, Romney, they don't necessarily have to be jacketed, but you need to have a feeding system where they can't grab a big bite of hay, pull it out easily, and start talking to their neighbors and dribbling it on the backs (laughs) of their neighbor. You need a feeding system that makes it a little tougher to get that hay out so that they stay nose to the feeder while they're eating. Andy Rice, who is an area shearer, he also feels that it's important that you have really quality hay because if it's not quality hay, they spend too long going at the hay and increasing the odds of spreading the hay around. So we did start trying to reach out to fiber farmers and shearers for their advice on how to keep fleece clean. And there wasn't always uniform agreement, but there are several factors that contribute to fleece getting too much vegetable matter. And when we say vegetable matter, not only hay, Burrs are a problem. You don't know it, but your sheep were close to the thistle bush that put burrs in there, and that's hard to get out. Or little seed pods that have embedded little black seeds in your fleece. So if you're thinking of raising sheep, which is a great thing to do, (laughs) think through how you're going to keep the fleece clean. That's amazing advice. I know that over the years, (laughs) we've periodically thought about sheep, and there's no immediate timeline plan for sheep, but those were things I had not considered thinking about. Yep. It starts with the breed selection. You really want to research. We know some fiber farm folks who have deliberately moved away from Cormos because they know they need to be jacketed. Hmm. And the Cormo fleece is just fantastic. But you got to be willing to do the jacket. And it's uh, labor intensive. So I know that in the first years of running a business, it is really hard to like look down the road because there is so much right in front of you that you need to be focusing on. But do you have like a long-term vision for the mill? When we started this, I think we first of all knew that we're probably never going to get amazingly rich from it. So that was never our goal. Our goal was to be part of the community in the big picture sense. So that starts with doing custom processing. But I think long-term, we would love to get more folks through the door to experience hand spinning to learn about how does it go from a sheep to a sweater, you know, and and we thought we could be potentially a sort of center for that sort of thing in this area, which we've seen a lot of small sheep farms come online in the past few years. My husband and I, we have five sheep, and I think that's actually really typical for this area. People who have day jobs and they just, they have a little bit of space out here in our rural area and they want to experiment with their fiber hobby into more than just knitting, but growing the wool themselves. So classes and getting more people in somehow, some way, it's really hard for us when our equipment is running and it's been extremely hard with COVID safety to think about that and live in a world where we can welcome people in all the time, but someday. A hub of education that encourages people who are on the fence about whether or not to get sheep or people who have sheep but would love to know how to maybe improve the situation. We've talked about having a class on how to make your own jackets if you want for sheep. Breed selection. I just think that there's the opportunity to be kind of a hub of exchange of information. On the mill side, we have carefully talked about maybe someday we'll go from eight spindles to 20. (laughs) 
<laughs> increase the capacity of the mill. If we had more spindles, we could do more wool. And then, you know, what we're currently playing around with is sort of feeding our own creative fiber artist needs, which is to work on doing more dyeing and developing of our own line of yarn that we can directly sell to knitters and knit shops. It's nice, like Peggy mentioned, to give farmers back their fiber, which they are really thrilled to see. But it's so fun, too, to be able to slap our own name on something and to be able to experiment with different techniques. So that's something we're actively looking into now as we figure out how to make the economy of the mill work a little bit better for us. When you have a space to work in to dye, you can feel like a kid in a candy store. We've been playing around with kind of a marled yarn dye, and you kind of don't know what you're going to get. And then I just did one recently. We're doing five pound increments so that you're coming out with uh, 10 pounds. Each ply is five pounds. And I remember being halfway through it and looking at what was in the pot and thinking, okay, it's okay <laughs> if you ruin 10 pounds of wool. <laughs> I couldn't really see the color well. And I left it in the pot overnight to cool down. And the next morning I tipped it out and, you know, it exhausted properly. And then I started laying it out on the drying rack in front of the store and then, you know, pin drafted it and spun it up. And I am absolutely over the moon with the results. Yeah. And we had a chance to take a look at some of your in-house yarn and loved it so much. We're going to be bringing it into the shop. Yay. And all color combinations are valid. That's right. It's the perfect color for somebody. You know, I think starting a business, ton of work, but it can be very exciting. And I think the other thing I feel strongly about is doing it with a partner. You're in it together for the highs and the lows, and it's got to be somebody that you've gotten to know well. But I think it has been a fabulous year, a little more than a year that Amanda and I have struck out on this. And I would never have done it on my own. And I would never have imagined that it could be as rewarding because I'm doing it with Amanda. It's funny, it felt like it was dragging on for so long this time last year as we were looking for locations. I think the time it was from idea in June 2020 to like signing on the line with Michael that we're going to buy the equipment took a couple months. I did some research. We, I went to a couple different mills in the area to see what they were doing and talk to the owners. And then from like September, we were on board. The mill could open tomorrow. And it took from September to February to find the location and get that ready. And those months felt so long. But you know, when we got the mill opened and we were rocking and rolling and we were a real thing, it was one of those pinch me moments. We started this real brick and mortar, very serious manufacturing business in less than a year. It was actually really wild. On top of having a business partner that has been so huge for us, having also our support people outside of this, and in our case, our husbands and our family to support us has been also very necessary and huge in this. The one thing I would also say when it comes to starting a mill, if we had had to buy the individual parts, the individual machines from around the country, I doubt we would have done it. Yeah. We already knew that Michael had done the research and that Michael had the best equipment for each of the tasks that had to be done. And without that, I doubt we would have done it because we, yep. we didn't know. We were able to do this on the backs of the research and expertise that Michael had applied. Having said that, 
if you Google it, there are mills for sale around the country, you know, so it can be done. This could be you, listener. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Well, be a little afraid. (laughs) Yeah, be a little afraid. But then do it anyways. Just do the thing. That's life. So the other thing that we wanted to ask you is, what's on your needles? Ooh, I have two things right now. One is an epic coat from Brooklyn Tweed, and I am knitting it with the first yarn that we ever made when we were doing our first lesson with Michael. So it's made out of some random commercial comb top, but it has the sentimental value of being this first yarn we ever spun together. And And you dyed it. I dyed it with marigold, did some natural dyeing. So it's bright yellow. I think it's called the Belfast coat. It's just giant. And it's in the state where I just need to block it and like finish it. But it's been sitting there for now a month. And so I'll get to that soon. But I was recently in Denmark and I was going to some of the knitting stores there and picked up some Danish yarn. So I'm now working on a petite knit pattern called the zipper pullover with your zipper sweater. It's very basic. It's just a zipper, but it's very cozy looking. And I'm knitting that with yarn that we spun here. That's from one of my sheep, a particular named sheep named Maisie. Uh, (laughs) I made a three ply Maisie yarn and I'm knitting it with this Danish mohair little strand. And it's going to be super cozy. And I am knitting Tia Coleman. She's a a designer, and I'm doing one of her sweaters. When we first got started, a lot of area sheep farms, we approached to see if they had any wool that we could practice on. And Katie Sullivan, who owns Cloverworks Farms, gave us what she thought was a cormo, but she wasn't sure. And we processed it as a three-ply, and it is phenomenal. We shut the mill down for two weeks to give ourselves a break. And I said to myself, I will tell Amanda that I'm stealing this. And I went on vacation with six skeins of this yummy stuff. And it's so fun to be knitting with wool that we process. And yeah, that's what I'm knitting. I think a lot of fiber folks kind of have this dream of taking the wool all the way through the process. Yes. And you can actually really do it and have, which is amazing. It's one of the reasons why at big fiber festivals like Maryland and Rhinebeck, they do that sheep to shawl. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it just blows your mind away where you're seeing the animal getting shorn at 730 in the morning. It's getting, you know, spun and woven in the grease and they make these shawls and you're just like, oh my God. I think that was for both of us, probably our best day ever at the mill was one of the first weeks we started coincided with shearing day, which we both kind of do together. We first go to Peggy's farm, shear for several hours, and then the shearer comes over to my house and shears what I had was two sheep last year in our garage and it takes 20 minutes. Anyways, we brought that (laughs) whole the mill and cut the line to process it. And it took me all of one day to process my two, but it was just magical to see it. You know, I've skirted this fleece. I've raised these animals from, you know, lambs. I I think I delivered them. And then here it is. I still haven't made anything to completion with my own sheep's yarn, but it is in the process and I'm very excited. I remember when the Savage Heart Farm yarn wool was going through the carter and it was coming out as this roving. And I I just stood there staring at it and cried. 
you know, you spend an entire year raising an animal and taking care of it and being responsible for it. And it has given you back this wool. And, you know, I used to drop it off at a mill and then pick it up. And there I was standing next to the carter that I owned and I was making the yarn. It just was crazy. Yeah. So I just kind of assumed Junction Fiber Mill is milling Savage Heart yarn now, right? Yeah. So when I'm at the farmer's market and say, yeah, these are from my sheep. And once in a while, just for fun, I smile and I say, oh, and I also made the yarn. (laughs) Vertical integration, folks. (laughs) That's right. I remember the phone call leading up to shearing and we were discussing the order of operations. We were going to acquire fleeces and practice with them for what we thought was going to be six months before we got good enough to like accept anyone's wool. It turned out three weeks and we're like, fine, we're good to go. But then I said to Peg, I think we really need to process both of our, like, I'm happy to put my two sheeps up for practice. Fine. And then I said, I think also Savage Heart Farm should go next. And you had a moment of hesitation where you're like, I don't know if we're going to be good enough by then. But But we were. We were. And I think it was a moment to say, we need to put our money where our mouth is. Precisely. We need to to feel confident enough to process your yarn, which is your other business is is this fiber farm. So it was a big deal to trust ourselves with your wool. And then after that, we could take everyone else's very precious wool as well. What's on your needles, Jessica? So I have taken my lot address out of time out. So I am back to very slow, very gray dress knitting. (laughs) And after all of my recent projects, it's exactly what I need to be working on. It's nice. I've talked about it before on the show, but I'm using Wilder from Spin Cycle, which is just the all gray sport weight Rambouillet that I love and is maybe just my favorite fiber in the whole world. What's on your needles, Karen? I got my Gresham wrap back out. There's a woman who knits here who just finished one and she brought the finished one in and was telling us that when we were first talking about it, she had misheard and has been calling it the aggression wrap (laughs) this whole time. And when she brought it in, it was gorgeous. And she was like, I'm going to have to stop calling it the aggression wrap. I am right in the middle of the forever long one color forever. And I'm really feeling a little aggression rap about this right now, but I'm really looking forward to when I get to change colors again at the other end. Be a little treat. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having us. It was our pleasure. We can't wait to see what you do next. Everyone, if you aren't already, you should be following them on Instagram so you can watch the Mills Fiber Adventures too. Yeah, we'll link all of the Junction Fiber Mill everything in the show notes, and that way you can go check out what they are up to. So thank you so much to Peggy and Amanda from the Junction Fiber Mill for talking to us today. I think that's it for today. I think it is. You can listen to us anywhere you get your audio podcasts. If you have somewhere that you get your audio podcasts that you can't find us, uh, let us know. You can rate and review us. It will help other knitters find us, which is always a good thing. Tell your friends. Follow us on Instagram at MakeGoodPod to see what we're up to. Also, we have a Patreon. And I know we've mentioned this before, but if you've been like waffling about whether or not you thought you wanted to support our Patreon, this is the week to do it. Because we're going to be at Rhinebeck. Oh, yeah. And Indian Tangled. And we're going to be posting pictures and maybe videos and like telling you all sorts of amazing things. 
We'll put some content on Instagram, so of course all of you can access it, but we'll be putting like additional content on our (laughs) Patreon. So, you know, give it a try. Bye. Bye.